Greetings, my kin and my people. This is Lila June, host of Nehisje, Indigenous Solutions, Indigenous Voices podcast. Hi, this is Katina Stone Butler with the Black History for White People podcast. So happy to be with each other today. We're so excited to do this very special episode where we are discussing how to be in deeper solidarity between the Black community and the Indigenous community, how to show up for each other, how we've showed up for each other in the past, and really have some of the harder conversations that we don't always talk about within our communities with the aim of being more resonant with each other and more healed with each other and more strong as we move forward for our collective liberation. Katina, maybe you could just give a brief overview of the impacts of colonization on the Black community. I know that's a very big subject, but maybe just, you know, go off on what you want to share with listeners who are of many different audiences on these podcasts. Well, just first of all, thank you, you know, for spending this time with me. I think that it is so powerful and necessary for us as Black and Indigenous people to give language to our shared experiences and our uh, triumph and even, you know, and how we stood in solidarity throughout history on this land, land that was stolen, you know, from Indigenous people and land that was forced upon Black bodies. And so as as a Black woman with Indigenous roots, my uh, great-grandmother, who passed away a couple of months before I got married in the mid-90s, she uh, was Black and Indigenous. Her mother was a Cherokee woman. And just growing up, sitting at her feet and learning from her experience as a Black woman and an Indigenous woman. And just my parents who instilled in me very early on, wanting me to have knowledge and understand who I am, who I was and where I came from. There's so much intersectionality and just um, intertwining of Black and Indigenous history. But Black womanhood was a construct that was created uh, by colonization before enslavement in Europe and, and here in this on this land. I was not a Black woman. You know, I was whatever tribe, you know, whatever, from whatever people, from wherever, you know, I lived, my people lived. But Black womanhood began on a slave ship and specifically for America began in 1619. You know, Black womanhood was created for commodification. Um, it was created for breeding and for basically being the incubators for a system of enslavement and oppression that would last for hundreds of years, but then the residual effects and the impact would still be felt today. It shows up in the many disparities in our health and intergenerational trauma. The Black experience in this country, and it's not limited to that experience, but Black people, of course, came in mass. Um, There were Black people here and all types of people here on this land um, prior to enslavement, but Black people came in mass on um, ships for the purpose of enslavement. The system of whiteness still benefits from farming tobacco fields and picking cotton. My parents picked cotton as little kids. Uh, my great great grandmother, who didn't pass away until I was 20, um, she was born in 1899. And her father was enslaved. And so 
Um, there were there was a time when there were five generations on both sides of the family that were alive. And so I was able to hear many stories of enslavement, of Jim Crow. Um, I was born just very shortly after Jim Crow. I was a part of the generation that integrated schools. My parents, they were the first generation to integrate schools. They were the late boomers. My parents, both growing up um, in poverty in rural Tennessee, all the stories that land on us, like into their individual stories and individual experiences that flow from a, a river and an ocean uh, of a system of oppression. Our stories are lived out, born from you know this system. And I don't know if that gives you, <laughs> I, I mean, there's no way I can really give you a history, um, but I can share my experience. I mean, I can give you the history and how it lands on um, our experience other than, you know, us going to the books and saying, this is what happened. Honestly, your words are extremely powerful and potent for me. And just the words, black womanhood was, was born on, on a slave ship, like, that really brought me to tears. I think something similar could be said for some of the indigenous communities that we yes. see today. The amount of, a lot of people look at the reservation and like, oh, why are these Indians so poor? Why are they so fat? You know, why do we have so much diabetes? Oh my gosh. Why, you yeah. know, and they say terrible. I've literally heard Horrible. people say that. And it's like, our current situation has nothing to do with us. And it is a pure reflection of the cruelty Absolutely. of colonization. Like, don't put that on us. That's not us. Right. That's not even us. That's what the actions of colonization have created. And even with those actions, yes. we are still bouncing back, standing up, being amazing rock stars, you know, uh, with love in our hearts and prayers on our lips for Absolutely. everyone, you know. I love to see it. But yeah, so thank you for sharing that and the amount of connection you have to these things that people say, oh, that's in the past, you know, but like you are within that lineage and you met the woman whose father endured enslavement is very powerful. And just to touch a little bit on that Afro-indigeneity, you know, I've, I lived in Alabama for oh, wow. quite a while and um, every... Black person I met there, I shouldn't say every, but the vast majority were also yeah. indigenous. They might have phenotypically visually looked black and they yeah. were black. I love what um, Melanin Muskogee does or says. She says indigeneity and blackness are not mutually right. exclusive. They are absolutely coexisting and any Afro-indigenous person we should support them in the reclamation of both identities um, simultaneously. Um, yeah. But anyways, what I always heard is, you know, the way colonization affected indigenous peoples is about 98% were wiped mm -hmm. out. Um, this is due to massacre yes. Yes. and disease. With black bodies, they wanted to preserve them, right? Because for their own capitalistic, disgusting yep. purposes, Right. But with indigenous bodies, they wanted to annihilate Absolutely. them. So there's a really important endeavor within the colonial system to destroy indigenous peoples because they inhabited the lands that were coveted. 
And I'm honestly not really sure why they didn't want to enslave us too. I know they tried, but I don't, that's an interesting question. I don't have education or time to go into now, but I do know that they really enjoyed annihilating us. Um, And it was very uh, supportive of their claim of land. So anyways, because of that, you have 2% of the indigenous population left. A lot of the tribes we know today, such as um, Seminole, you know, Navajo, these are actually survival bands. They do not represent the original Mm. composition of the Mm. people. Like 98% is a big amount. And so two things on that. Number one, when you only have 2% left, there's a genetic bottleneck oftentimes. And you have to marry outside of your race or or outside of your family because you're related to almost everyone. And that's a joke we say in Native communities is like, I know one day I'll find someone I'm not related to. So we married into Black families. And Black families supported us in continuing our lineages onward. Um, And I'm so excited for this uh, Afro-Indigeneity movement, which is bringing that power of the Indigenous root that is within those lineages out and, and combining those powers. But also on that note, you know, when there's so few of this left, we also had to think about today there are 573 indigenous nations in the United States alone, 573 distinct tribes. And that's after 98% were killed off. So times that to extrapolate it back to a hundred percent, you have thousands and thousands of different native communities And so the original composition of that grandeur, of that grandiosity, of that beauty of those civilizations is often lost on the historical record. Um, So anyways, that's obviously a big way that colonization impacted our communities was just pure erasure, erasure of our bodies, erasure of our languages, erasure of our cultures. And that's why people like me, the survivors of the 2%, right, like we're so beautifully bringing all of yes. that back. We say we want land back, we want our culture back, we want our language back, we want our bodies back. You know, we want we want to live. We want to live on this land. We want to exist. Yeah. That's oftentimes the baseline desire. <laughs> so anyways, I could go on and on too about the effects of colonization on indigenous peoples, but suffice it to say it was it was commonplace before the 18, late 1800s to just shoot every single person you saw yeah. on site. Um, yeah. And I this, and you know, I live in um, Denton, Texas, where there was a monument, a Confederate monument, but also that was just taken down during the protest of 2020. But also, the founder of this land, uh, John B. Denton. There is a tribute to him and it talks about how he, you know, proudly annihilated all of the indigenous people from this land in the name of whiteness. I mean, this is something that I personally have read um, and I've lived here for 28 years and it's proudly displayed. So absolutely. And there's a history of the annihilation of indigenous people in Dallas. And this is why they are doing so much work to eradicate and revise history because their arrogance, 
the arrogance and the pride of whiteness, they documented everything. So we're, we can see it clearly. Like it, it's been there in our faces um, this whole time in the, in the monuments, I call them concrete penises in the monuments that they <laughs> erected. Um, yeah. That's that they're foul. Like they're, they're foul. Like they're penises. Um, <laughs> that's what they are. Um, and that they erected after enslavement, uh, 50 years after enslavement is over because of that, that pride and that arrogance and that, you know, the songs, the music, an entire culture built on the construct construct of destroying and annihilating people and commodifying people. So, yeah, I affirm everything right. that, you, that you say. Um, and I am just a few miles from Oklahoma. And just even when I have driven into Oklahoma, because I've gone, you know, I go, I've, I've been there quite a bit. The, the spirit of heaviness that I feel, because I feel like the spiritual ramifications of oppression and just the, everything that um, systemic oppression has done to to our people, I, I feel it. You do not you do not spill that much blood, and it doesn't cry from the ground. I mean, we are walking on blood every day, you know. We are walking on grass that it has been watered with blood. We have, and I believe that there's an opportunity to heal in this very dark situation. Yeah. Um, and I also often acknowledge that uh, what we now today call white yeah. folks uh, were, were once indigenous to a land and that they learned all of these things, all of the conquest, all of the scarcity mindset, all of the uh, domination yeah. mindset from their own oppressors, talking about the Roman expansion, talking about how the women of Europe were burned yep. as witches, um, talking about the prohibition of indigenous European languages. You, you couldn't speak Welsh, Gaelic or Celtic in school up until the early 1900s, that was it was banned, and the enslavement as well that the Romans would do to others. All of that they call it the Dark Ages for a reason, right? Two thousand years of open warfare in yeah. Europe. So one one of my native elders says you have to have compassion and understanding for the colonizers because they were coming from all out war, the bubonic plague wiping out a third of everyone overnight. White folks, as we call, as we say now, and I actually am part European, so I even identify as a white person sometimes. Um, I have that lineage and that, to some degree, that privilege, although I don't look right. very white, that we carry a lot of trauma as white folks. We are like oozing with it and it, we ooze it all over everyone right. else. <laughs> and so I like to and so I think the healing that is capable on this land, on what we call Turtle Island, you know, we try not to call yeah. it America because that's from Amerigo Vespucci, is documented to have been on commission to look for people to enslave and gold to extract. That was his sole purpose of his quote unquote yeah. voyages. So we don't like to call it America. We don't like to be called Native Americans. We don't want to be named after that guy. Um, <clears throat> we prefer indigenous people. We prefer to call this land Turtle Island. 
So now that I got that out of the way, I think there's a lot of opportunity for healing on this land we call Turtle Island because so much blood, as you said, has watered this grass. It It's sort of like the darkest times can yield the most beautiful acts of bravery, of courage, of remorse and forgiveness and apology and reparation. The darker it is, the more beautiful it is when we stand up and be good to each other and heal these things. So I'm really grateful that this episode is part of that, one small part of that. But going on to, we have a little um, idea of what we want to say today. One of the things we were talking about is sharing the beauty of the cross-pollination of Black and Indigenous communities, Um, you know, highlighting some of the ways in which uh, our respective communities have shown up for each other. So I don't know if there's any specific examples you want to share or just what you want to say in your heart about, um, you know, the history of examples of of how we have been there for each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the intermarrying of Black and Indigenous people, I think, is a huge part of our history of solidarity. And also, you know, as a measure of protection and covering how African Americans, Black people would flee to Indigenous territories for protection, hide when we were fleeing enslavement, there would be shelter and there would be care and solidarity there, you know, in escaping to freedom. There are many stories, like I said, as well as intermarrying. And even the fact that Indigenous people are not a monolith, just like Black people are not a monolith. And partly because of enslavement in this country, like a Black person can look white, you know, because of how Black women were raped and bred like animals. But also Indigenous people can look just like me. They could be darker than me. They could have um, complete like jet Black skin and not have intermarried, right? So an indigenous person could be black skinned or brown skinned. And and if they step outside of their space, they'll be treated just like a black person, just like a person who is an immigrant from Nigeria can come over here and not have necessarily had the experience that black Americans have. But if they get pulled over by the cops, (laughs) they're going to be seen as a black person because that's how whiteness is, the construct of whiteness has to categorize everyone. And if you're black or white, you can still say that you are Hispanic or non-Hispanic. Like they have to put us in categories. And so for many people that are indigenous, they are living the black experience Mm -hmm. because of the skin Mm -hmm. that they are housed in, right? But as far as solidarity, when you think about that being the backdrop, there's all kinds of ways that we had to show up for each other because we were treated with equal disdain for different reasons. Like you said, the annihilation of indigenous people and the commodification of black bodies. But I think about Stokely Carmichael Mm -hmm. when he stood in solidarity, I think it was in 1973 with indigenous group who stormed wounded knee and how he had a philosophy about how mm-hmm. we as a people, Black and Indigenous people, we could only overcome and really fight this war by the taking back of land and mm-hmm. how land was just, and, and this is where it started with them taking your land. 
with them annihilating indigenous people for land and us trying to stake our claim by taking land back was where it was at, you know, <laughs> and, and, and mm-hmm. Stokely Carmichael mm-hmm. was just, he's one person and there's many, you know, I just think about him in the sixties and seventies, giving space and holding space for indigenous brothers and sisters. That's right. absolutely like one of my heroes. But then just like I said, the natural ways we coexisted under the white gaze mm-hmm. and we have different experiences, but they're so meshed together, which is so sad um, when you think about how there's so much effort to divide marginalized people groups and for us to have to hate each other and to play the game mm-hmm. of who was oppressed more. And I, I would venture to say that no one, no one, not in this country, no one has been uh, persecuted more than indigenous and black people. And we are mm-hmm. so much stronger together because of, you know, our experience and we've been together. Yes. And I remember one time when I was at Oregon State University giving a talk or something, there was the most beautiful uh, indigenous longhouse mm-hmm. on the campus. And it brought me to mm-hmm. tears to learn that the Black Student Union was a very strong ally and accomplice and mm-hmm. partner to the indigenous student group in the creation of this longhouse yeah. on campus. Like it makes me cry yeah. right now, like that the Black Student Union would see an indigenous struggle and like stand behind them and be right there with them side by side the whole way until they got this longhouse. I was something like, yeah extremely beautiful about that. Vice versa, you know, I know that Nick Tilson, who is the head of the Indie In Collective, which is a pretty massive Indigenous organization, national Indigenous organization, spent a lot of time with Alicia Garza uh, and the Black Lives Matter movement, putting the power, what power we have as Indigenous peoples, which isn't always a lot, um, but whatever we got, you know, behind Black Lives Matter movement. And I see like indigenous folks really showing up for the movements that are on the ground in the streets. And at the very same time, you know, you and I are going to get into some ways we haven't shown up for each other. We don't want to sugarcoat it or make it puppies and rainbows because there's been times when we have not been there for each other. And there is still anti-blackness within the indigenous community still today. So even though I'm brought to tears and I never like those tears will never be discounted at the ways in which we've been there for each other. And we've stepped outside of ourselves, outside of our struggles, outside of our movements, outside of our pain and stepped into the other communities, struggle, movement, pain and shown up, you know, stood up, stood by them. You know, I, I think that's that absolutely has happened throughout time, like you said. And I love the other links you sent me earlier today. You know, there's a, a very iconic picture of all these statues coming down yes. during the protests of 2020. And there's, of course, like a lot of statues of Columbus oh, yes. that are hitting the dirt. And I couldn't help but be like, wow, this watershed moment for Black folks by Black folks is also including a watershed moment for Indigenous peoples. And granted, there's a whole lot of more work to do yeah. on both sides. Uh, but um, 
and and I even you know I'm tr- I've been trying to find a husband for you know everyone knows like many wow. many years, <laughs> and I even was uh, briefly getting to know someone who said, oh, you know I don't I don't like that they changed Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. I said why? He said well, um, because I'm Italian and I'm proud of Columbus. I'm like wait so just because he's the same. But he like he's documented to have been very brutal, raped people, talked down to people, murdered people and destroyed whole cultures, which he thought were worthless. Wow. And he said, well, I don't care because it's because of the indigenous blood that was spilled that America was able to exist. And so I thank you and your people for sacrificing yourselves for the creation of this nation. Yeah, no, and and obviously that was the first and last date I ever went Whoa. with this person. Yeah, but dating as a native woman, like it's like I have to re-educate. If I'm if I'm not dating a native man, I have to educate usually a person like from the ground up, you know, and like I have to explain we we're not like primitive cavemen. We're not still living in teepees, and like it's just like insane so to see that columbus statue go down was really exciting for me but i also know the ignorance that still exists in the white community that is so upset that this statue would go down and they feel attacked and defensive and all that bs god bless them but you know they feel like the victim now which is insane to me i love that i love that they want to be persecuted so bad and the people who have actually been persecuted can't get any, you know, I, it's it's insane. Yeah. I love that scene in the Harriet Tubman film that yeah. came out where the the white woman was, quote unquote, losing her property. And because the enslaved peoples were like, like right. moving out, you know, and she starts crying, you know, she's like, what about me? Think of everything I'm losing. And it's like, yeah, you are losing your handle on people's yeah. necks. Deal with it. Right. <laughs> like, so I'm so sorry for you. You must feel yeah. terrible, but like, thank God you're losing this. You know, and that that's a real thing. Yeah. That is a very real thing that we are experiencing in America, where there's this white fear of losing power. And like you said, it's expressing itself as I'm being persecuted, right? But anyways, yeah. I, what I was trying to say is that there are also some issues within the indigenous and black communities that we've already agreed we need to voice these. And I want to just do it real quick on my side is that, you know, Katina and I have talked about all this beautiful solidarity. We've talked about all of our visions and even Katina and I had to have some conversations to learn from each other, to figure stuff out. And we're still in that process. There is also a very negative side. So for example, there are native nations who did enslave black folks. This is a documented historical fact. For example, I know that Salagi, a.k.a. Cherokee, were one of them, I believe. I know there was others. I'm sorry, I'm not interested enough to say exactly who. But not only did they enslave Black folks, but once emancipation legally occurred, according to white laws, not only did these Native nations enslave these folks, but they also would not give them citizenship within the tribal roles after they were freed. So this is the Freedman issue, which uh, we would be remiss to not mention in this episode. 
The freedmen are essentially Black folks who were freed from Cherokee enslavement and never were allowed to be a part of the tribe. And this is after they had given so much to the tribe. They had given their labor, their sweat, their even intermarriage. You know, a lot of these folks were even blood related and they still weren't allowed in the tribe due to anti-Blackness. So we have to uh, give citizenship and enrollment to the freedmen who are still asking for this today. That is my stern stance as an Indigenous woman to speak to my own Indigenous people and say, come on, like we can do better. We are all about relationships, relationality, kinship. Why are we excluding these folks from our communities who were such a deep, integral part of our communities? Okay, so there's that. The second thing I want to say is that there is still anti-Blackness within our Indigenous communities, which we inherited from white supremacist culture. Like, we're just copying our own oppressor to feel like we have a little more power. And that needs to stop. For example, in the Diné culture, the word for Black, uh, the color, is Tlijin. And from Tlijin, there was a word that was created for Black folks that has a very othering derogatory term. And I've even heard my own family use it in my lifetime. We need to stop that. We need to go back to our original way of seeing, which is kinship. We gave everybody a clan, and there are Afro-Indigenous Diné people who have done a lot of work to abolish this term, which comes from the word Tlishin, and to replace it with a new Diné Mm -hmm. word, which means those who have overcome. That is our new clan name for Mm -hmm. Black folks. And so when when Afro-Indigenous children introduce their clans within a native Diné setting, they can say, I'm Tachitni clan on my mom's side, and I'm those who overcame mm. on my father's side, you know? So giving dignity. But anti-Blackness shows up. It's insidious. It's silent sometimes. It's subtle. And it's extremely toxic and damaging. So what can we do as Indigenous peoples to acknowledge the anti-Blackness that we have mimicked and inherited from white folks and the white uh, supremacist system? And replace it with kinship, replace it with bringing folks in and saying, you are our kin just as much as any other living creature on this earth. You know, we love, we, we say we're, we're relatives to the trees. We say we're relatives to the clouds. We say we're relatives to the buffalo. Why are we relatives to our yeah. black relatives? And that's what we need to come back to. So, okay, I'm going to no, get off my fine. soapbox there for a second, but... I had to well, say, well, and on the black hand side, which is, you know, that's a black saying. <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard King Five <laughs> on the black hand side. That's something that came out of the sixties and seventies. But, um, but uh, <laughs> on the black hand side, the ways in which we practice anti-indigenous, it's hard to explain, but I'll give it a shot. It's how colonization has done a number on all of us. It has stripped identity and how we are not able to trace our lineage. You know, for African-Americans, it can be almost impossible to trace who you are back to a certain generation. And because of intergenerational trauma and just the desire to want to get past and move past this horrible history, and because of how even today white America has become so consumptive 
of the black experience through the lens of enslavement. You know, you mm-hmm. have these so-called woke white people who want to tell our stories and think that they can tell them better than us. And a lot of the stories that in through the lens in which they tell it is us being whipped and beaten, which is a part of our history, but in wanting to distance ourselves from enslavement and instead of embracing it. It's so mm-hmm. funny how Black people are like, I don't want to see any more slave movies. And for me personally, because my great, great grandmother, who I spent summers with, who I, who helped raise me and I spent time on her land, you know, she was so proud to tell me that her father was enslaved. And I wrestled with that. And I have so much pride in my enslaved ancestors because they were still overcoming and I still stand on their shoulders, right? I stand on their shoulders and they are not, and that's why I don't use the word slaves. I use the word enslaved, enslaved, because they were not what they were made to be. They were still, you know, doctors mm-hmm. and and lawyers and inventors and craftsmen and women and seamstresses and healers and midwives they were human, but because colonization has did such a number in stripping our identity, Black people want to disassociate ourselves. Some Black people want to disassociate ourselves from that experience, and we latch on to identities that are convoluted, um, I don't know, contaminated with a revision, revisionist history, Um in the same ways that white people or white folks or the system of whiteness has revised history to its advantage. And while I do understand, I don't agree. And so, for example, in the ways that black people will say, well, we were already here. We were not brought over. Um, We were not in Africa. We were already here. Well, yes. Do I believe that black people were here, people with black skin we're here in on this land, absolutely. I, because again, um, one people from Africa, people from all over the world, um, had been on this land, just like Columbus came to this land. This land was not discovered; it was already lived on, and there were um, exchanges, you know, between uh, communities and black mm-hmm. people who existed here. But there were indigenous people. And black indigenous people, people, you know, there were there was all of that here. But in mass, mm-hmm. black people came from parts of Africa via enslavement. And we don't have mm-hmm. and there's no shame in that because that wasn't no y'all. Shame. Like, I, you yeah. know, I had a friend, I went through a specific uh, experience um some years ago. And I remember feeling so much shame and it wasn't something that I did to myself. It was something that was done to me. And I was telling my friend, I'm so embarrassed. And she was like, what, what the hell are you embarrassed for? You ain't do it. You, you didn't do it to yourself. It was done to you. You, you should not be embarrassed for anything. Mm-hmm. You should be walking around with your head held high with pride because you didn't do it. And so that's the way I feel. Mm-hmm. I am proud of Every I'm proud of, and it's so interesting because, like the movie Black Panther, um, which I love, especially I love the first one, and I I really struggled with the character Killmonger because he would destroy 
uh, Black people because he was hurting, because he was hurt for one. There was uh, T'Challa who was more of a we are the world type. <laughs> and then there was Killmonger. And mm-hmm. they tried to make these, make it like a, a Martin Luther King versus Malcolm thing. And I, I don't know how I feel about all that. You know, because <laughs> I feel like we 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 try so hard to just make something fit and, and stuff, things have nuance and they have complexity. And you can't just fit mm-hmm. stuff in a box um, like that. And you can't mm-hmm. pack it into a movie, even though I, I love Black Panther, the movie. And I love so much of what they did. I walked away, you know, feeling a little conflict and on some other things. But at the end when he says, bury, you know, throw me in the ocean with my ancestors who believe that, you know, basically they were too dignified to be enslaved. That's not fair. That's not a fair statement because... Black people, sometimes Black people will make these distinctions and say, well, I would have never, you don't know what the hell you would have ever did. You would have been enslaved. And just because people were enslaved and their names are not the names that we celebrate because they're they're unknown, there are people who stayed on the plantation because they didn't want their child to die. There are people who didn't run away because they, mm. they wanted to love on the community that was there. There were people who were pissing and pooping mm. in the master's food and poisoning the masters a little bit at a time. There, you know, there were there were people that mm-hmm. were working those cotton fields and just trying to make it from day to day. They get the same dignity as the ones who fought on the ships, the ones who jumped off the ships. They get the same dignity. And mm-hmm. so what happens is, and I'm sorry for the long explanation, but what happens is like we should not be stripping other people, especially other marginalized groups of their dignity in order to uplift the dignity for ourselves or, you know, or, or in order to stake mm-hmm. a claim for ourselves. Um, let the truth be the truth. And there is good truth and ugly truth. Just like, you know, I'm black and mm-hmm. with indigenous uh, uh, ancestry and Cherokee, Tennessee Cherokee. And there is that ugly history that Cherokee people enslaved Black people. It doesn't make me less mm-hmm. or more. It, it just is what it is. And then it, it, my thing is give grace to people who were enslaved, who were doing the best that they could do because we're, people will say stuff like, oh, I'm not my ancestors. You sure in the hell aren't. You aren't your ancestors. Mm-hmm. And that is, mm-hmm. and that you should not say that as a slight. I'm not my ancestors. I'll, I'll do this and that. The only reason why you can fight the way you can fight is because of your ancestors. For the ones who could not fight, you're able to fight for them and then some. So we should not make these white colonized distinctions between our experiences and our ancestors. And we should not try to stake a claim on an experience that is not ours. We should shed tears for the black brothers and sisters whose bloodline was annihilated, who whose people were commodified, whose people were enslaved. We have enough tears to shed for all of them. And we have enough dignity to pour out on everyone because they should not be less. We shouldn't distance ourselves from our identity because someone else decided the fate of someone who looks like us. So. 
Wow. Thank you so much. That is incredibly powerful, incredibly nuanced, and incredibly firm in, in how in where you stand. And I, I want to give people a little background in case they don't know sort of like the deeper thing of what uh, you're alluding to is that there's a huge movement within the Black community to say all kinds of interesting things, you know, like um, Black folks were here before enslavement um, also, which is right. true, you know, like everyone and their mom was here before right. Columbus. I just want to say that, like the Chinese right. were here, the Absolutely. Africans were here, the Tahitians were here, you know, the way my elder said, creator made the oceans to have roads. And to imply that African people were not capable of seafaring before Columbus is also racist. You know, I truly deeply believe that the Afro-Brazilian culture that is so strong was there way before uh, enslavement in Brazil. Um, that's just my personal belief. Obviously, I'd have to do all kinds right. of work to prove that. But like, there is documented periods where African folks set right. sail. And this was, and, and even the Norse came, we know, before Columbus, like uh, 400 years. So anyways, so I'm not denying that. What I'm saying is that people have gone so far to say that uh, African people civilized Native Americans first. There's literally a uh, article that came out, uh, and you know, there's all kinds of stuff on the internet, so you can't give it too much weight. But um, there's an yeah. article that talks about yeah. uh, how before Columbus, Africans brought civilization to America, <laughs> and like, how insane is that sentence? For so many reasons, like. As if to say there wasn't already civilization here, and to call this land America is to right. glorify and reify the same guy who was enslaving both of us. Um, that's the background of what Katina right. is saying, is that there is this toxic narrative, which, as you said, is to create distance uh, from blackness and enslavement between the two. And what you're saying is, Hey, why do we have to be ashamed right. of enslavement? Right. We, like, how? Like, isn't it incredible that we that happened to us and we're still here? Like, and that and that's the same thing with me as a woman who's experienced a lot of uh, gender violence. For a long time, I blamed myself. Oh, if I wouldn't have got drunk that right. night, this guy wouldn't have done that to me. Or if I would have said no, he wouldn't have done that to me. Right. But at a certain point, yeah. my mentor said, "Lila, why are you carrying the shame of what these men did to you?" Like that's that has nothing to do with you. You cool. You are unscathed. You are unchanged. That is their stuff to carry. That is not yours to carry. So similarly, as with all different forms of abuse, there's parallels. And then a couple of things I wanted to share too. Um, yes. it, it's fascinating, and I think I'm just going to be brutally honest here. I think a lot of indigenous peoples feel hurt that there is this huge attention, and I'd love your perspective on this, but this huge attention on yeah. the Black Lives Matter movement, which is so important and so overdue, and I love that it is happening. Let me be clear. And at the very same time, I think Indigenous peoples right. feel defeated, discouraged that we are not also having this watershed moment. Because what's fascinating is that Indigenous folks are 
you know, not to play oppression Olympics or any of that BS, but statistically, we are more likely to be shot by the police than any other demographic in the country. And the police brutality on native reservations is off the hook. I mean, and it's not, it, and, and, right. and I am glad that the spotlight is on police brutality against black bodies. Like that needs to happen. I think I'm just being brutally honest that indigenous peoples feel unheard, unseen, that that is also happening. Um, and other insane forms of violence like indigenous women, the third leading cause of death is homicide for us. The third leading cause of death for Native women right. is homicide. That is crazy. And it has everything to do with uh, the human trafficking, the sex trafficking, the abduction and murder of Indigenous women's bodies. Um, and it's not our own. Native men are not the people killing Native women. <laughs> These are non-Native people coming onto our reservations, which have no legal ramifications for abduction and right. murder. Um, and none killing women, uh, like leaving them, like raping them, beating them, leaving them for dead. And I've heard terrible stories. I mean, weird stories and like lynchings, sexual lynchings of native women, you might say. Um, and, and, and Gabby Patino, this white woman who was lost, you know, getting huge national attention, you know, meanwhile, like we have this huge epidemic of native women being abducted and going missing, so I'm just being brutally honest that like there is, a, I almost want to say jealousy, although that's obviously terrible to have, but there's a little bit of like, hey, when, when are we going to be seen as indigenous right. peoples? Um, I've even heard native folks say, I'm a, I'm a native girl in a black and white world, which I know is completely oversimplified and it's not right at all but i'm just saying that is the honest uh experience whether it's right or wrong that a lot of native people have is like there's so much um incredible brilliant famous black authors musicians filmmakers uh leaders and like we're so grateful for that and i think there's a little tinge of like we want that too which I know is is also problematic because you don't want to compete for white gays, right? There's that whole thing, but I think what it is is we want to be seen right. in our in our own homeland when oftentimes we just feel invisible. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. So I'm going to say a few things because I definitely feel, you know, your words and where you're coming from. This this is the thing. Everything that you describe, that lands at the feet of white people, because what what's happening is that or, or white society or the system. What happens is that whiteness has made indigenous people invisible. When you look at the history of black people in this country, the enslavement, then the so-called emancipation, 
And now just this re-emboldening by, you know, Trump, they've made you guys invisible. But for us, Mm -hmm. we're like a stench in their nostrils. They benefit by criminalizing us. So Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter is not in the media because everybody is supportive of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter, Black resistance is in the media because they are using it to continue to make their points. It would be different if people are being celebrated. We're not being celebrated. We're still we're still seeing images of black bodies being slaughtered in the streets. And I get and and I'm going to I'm going to go there. I'm like I get go there. Go there. Where and people and and other people of color are saying, "Well, we're being made invisible by white and blackness, but that was not created by blackness. That was created by whiteness." And so mm-hmm. black people, we have had to become our own news coverage through social media because the slaughter of black people by and large was invisible for a very long time. And even us taking to the streets and doing the things that we have done, the media is still presenting this polarized view and using that same, they're using our resistance to further criminalize and incriminate us. They're not mm-hmm. using it to say, oh, well, you know, they're right. People should have dignity. They're mm-hmm. saying, oh, look at these, you know, N-words in the street. This is why they deserve to be treated the way they're treated. Oh, they're lying. Oh, racism doesn't exist. So it's not furthering our cause with white folks. Mm-hmm. They're just using it all against us. Mm-hmm. But they have crippled indigenous people in a way I, I just feel like they are, that is whiteness. It is set up yeah, to keep us pitted against each other. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to say, well, we struggle, just like when they throw the Irish in the pot. Oh, well, the Irish were enslaved and da 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 You know, there is definitely a real conversation about why everything is made black and white. And there's no room for indigenous people. Puerto Rico, like there's no room. But that that room not being made is not because of black people. It's because of white people. Right. And so right, right. I would challenge my indigenous sisters and brothers to, to take that fight where it belongs at the feet of whiteness. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do believe that we have a responsibility towards each other for each other, because you cannot uplift state sanctioned violence against black bodies without holding space for its impact on indigenous bodies. We need to hold space for each other, absolutely. And do I feel that there's power in that, you know, for us to feel seen and heard by each other? Yes, we definitely need to do that. But we need to blame who's responsible for the Mm -hmm. invisibility. Mm -hmm. And that's not black people. Mm -hmm. And that's not indigenous people. That's the system of whiteness. so there's that part. But then again, like I said, we need to hold space for each other. Yes. Uh, indigenous women, they're being sexually abused, slaughtered and trafficked in a way that's state sanctioned. There's no repercussions for an indigenous woman being raped. It is insane. And yes, the third leading, leading cause of death for indigenous women is murder. That is disgusting, disheartening. We need to be yelling that off the rooftops for black women one through 10 are rooted in healthcare disparities and medical racism mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. black women are not held or heard or esteemed or regarded. 
departed in the healthcare system. I have my own story and I, I work in healthcare and have, I kind of felt I'm a music artist, creative, but I fell into healthcare 20 something years ago. My mom's a retired nurse. I almost lost my mother to medical racism in a hospital that she worked decades in. Almost lost my oldest son because I wasn't being listened to. And I was told that I had a flu bug when actually what I had were tumors that were trying to force my baby out of my body and I almost lost him. And mm -hmm. so it's all killing us at 1.75,000 missing black girls and women. And the bottom line is not to compare apples to apples. The bottom line is nobody cares about indigenous women being raped in a country where that is supposed to be against the law, there's no law to protect an indigenous woman and nobody cares about black women or indigenous women going missing or being sex trafficked. This story about Carly Russell is being sensationalized as if that is the reason why black women or women of color don't deserve to get news time or you know our stories to be heard because this one black girl lied. Mm -hmm. And even mm -hmm. black people buy into that. Yeah. And so we have to be careful, I think, not to buy into that kind of foolishness that would minimize our own voices. And we have to learn how to hold space for each other because we're not suppressing our voices. And if we're uplifting our voices and we're getting the attention, the attention is always negative. It's never positive. Like police brutality has not diminished. If anything, they've ridiculed and you know, try to expose Black Lives Matter. It's a Jewish run syndicate. Like they create conspiracy theories. Like we're not better for being in the white news. Mm -hmm, we're not getting, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. black girls are not being protected. Indigenous women are not being cared for more because they're in the white news. You know, Dakota mm -hmm. Pipeline, like, you know, those stories, we're not better for them giving us a spotlight because oftentimes they're using that spotlight against us. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. It does. It does. There's I mean, a lot no, of points. You push back and tell me what you think. <laughs> no, I love this. I love this vulnerability and honesty. No, I think you made, a, <laughs> I think you made a lot of really important points. And I think yeah. we need to have these discussions open and honest or else we're never going to get anywhere. Um, but I like the point you made of like, Hey, don't be jealous of our spotlight. Cause it's actually being used against us. And the other thing of like, hey, like this black and white right. conversation that is dominating the national conversation is not wrought by black folks. It is wrought by whiteness. So bring it to that. So I those points are well taken. One thing I wanted to add to that, all that is like, I think that sometimes that the miseducation of the whole country has caused black folks to accidentally legitimize America within their struggle. So let me explain what I mean by that. Let's take Martin Luther King, for example. Yep. Yeah, one of the things he said yep. was liberty and justice for all. And then when we tried to cash that check, it came back insufficient funds. And what he meant by that was he was saying, hey, look, America, you said this is a country built on liberty and justice for all. But when we as black folks ask for our civil rights, you don't pay up. What I think he's accidentally doing in that process is he's legitimizing the American nation state. So let me explain what I mean by that, is that by asking for rights within an American legal system, okay. you are 
subtly and implicitly legitimizing that America, that their laws and the whole country that creates them is legitimate. So what I mean by that is as, as Native people, we view the whole concept of America, the word America, the concept of America, as an illegitimate military occupation, an illegitimate, illegal military occupation of indigenous lands by their yeah. own laws, even it's illegal, not discounting yeah. the universal laws of morality, it's illegal, but um, by their own laws. And so in the struggle yeah. for black liberation, and like you said, it's not a monolith, so I'm not saying everyone ascribes to this, but I think with the desire to have a quote unquote place within America, not just black folks, but all um, other immigrant, not to say black folks are in the same category as immigrant communities, because they're not, <laughs> it was by force that they were brought here, but other immigrant communities, right. such as right. the quote unquote Asian American community, the Indian American community, even that hyphenation of American, Indian American, Chinese American, like is reifying and legitimizing that America belongs here, which I know is extremely yeah. uh, controversial statement to many <laughs> Uh, pro-American listeners, but that what what I'm saying is that as we fight for our rights, quote unquote, within an American system, we are reifying that system. When the alternative, what we could be doing instead is saying, look, what maybe Martin Luther King could have said is y'all are operating on stolen indigenous lands. We have to say that first and foremost. And regardless of your laws, regardless of your um, yeah. of the civil rights you afford to different peoples or people in general, we all need to be treated humanely, period. And that does not depend on the existence of America as a nation state. So in other words, like how do we delegitimize America while at the same time fighting for black liberation? How do we not... For example, on CNN, they said black voters, white voters, Hispanic voters, and then they said something else, right? Like native voters weren't even in the little graph, which to your point, that is not black people's creation. That is the creation of a white news network, right? But in this graph, it says black voters, white voters, and then Native people weren't even on the list. <laughs> like we were called something else. Right. And it caused this right. huge r- ripple in social media. And we made all kinds of, you know, Native people were very funny. So we made fun of it. And, you know, I guess I'm just something else or whatever. But, but it was terrible. Right. And so I want to say, how do black folks not buy into that framing that CNN and white culture is creating of forgetting I think what I'm trying to say is, while I agree that black folks are not generating that black and white conversation, they still fall prey to it sometimes, right? They still, not intentionally, but accidentally forget that Native folks are here and that the entire struggle for black liberation is occurring on stolen Indigenous lands and that Indigenous rights are just as important as we fight for black liberation and vice versa. So I don't know if that makes sense either, but I hope that adds color to like, it does. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you, I love and hear and feel everything that you are saying. And that's jolting for me as a person who 
I feel that, you know, I am doing the work of anti-racism and I needed to hear that, you know, maybe calling myself an African-American, which I actually love the term black, but maybe calling myself an African-American isn't a good idea in order to stand in solidarity with my indigenous sisters and brothers. And so what if you said African Turtle Islander? I know that takes a that takes a long time to say, <laughs> but it could be like a way to be like, I don't I don't subscribe to your American stuff. Like, no, this yes. is Turtle Island, you know? <laughs> and I love that. And the thing is, it's just this conversation has given me a burden and an awareness that I need to carry with me. This is the beauty of where we are in our generation right now, on the shoulders that we stand on the shoulders of the afflicted, the oppressed, and we are the bloodline, like we are the lineage and we are the hope, you know? And in our generation, we are the ones who are putting language, very strong, you know, current language. When our elders, all they could do was put their head down and work. You know, different generations have contributed different things. And when I look at the civil rights movement and what yes, specifically my people contributed, the boomers, now my generation gets to put words. And because there's been such a powerful movement of language in this generation. I mean, you know, and how people, they do pronouns and just all the different things, the different ways people express themselves, how we don't, I don't say homeless anymore. I say unhoused and the system of whiteness will be like, oh, everybody's trying to be so PC and woke. No, you're trying to give dignity to someone's experience. Mm. And Mm -hmm. if me saying black, Turtle Islander or, you know, African, like if me saying that gives power and acknowledgement Mm. to indigenous sisters and brothers in the struggle, then it makes them feel more seen and heard. Why the hell would Mm. I not do that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like we have to constantly speak truth to power. You know, I just feel it in my spirit, just this jump in my spirit of like, that's a new element of awareness that I need to carry with me to make each other more visible because yeah. they're not going to do it. So we <laughs> yeah. have to do it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. No, no. I think, I think that everything, all the rambling I said could be encapsulated within that phrase, black turtle Islander, African turtle Islander, because that unites our struggles of like, Yes, I am fighting for Black liberation in the context of Turtle Island. It honors that side. And then from my perspective, we have to change our language. I know there's a huge movement to stop saying the word slaves and start saying the word enslaved, which again Mm -hmm. is about putting the onus on people who enslaved. There's no such thing as a slave. And actually in my PhD dissertation, I just want to say this is a a real excerpt that I put in my dissertation, in my little tiny attempt to be in solidarity with folks, it's by Grills et al. And they say, which I was honored to put in juxtaposition with other things in the dissertation about indigenous liberation. They say, black people were not quote unquote slaves. They were enslaved. Black people were human victims of the heinous act of enslavement. 
One of the most brutal inventions of civilization was the creation of a thing called slave. In the United States, the thing called slave was invented to resolve the cognitive dissonance inherent in a society that proclaimed that all men are created equal, yet treated African people as commodities. It turned human beings into objects. I know that's not a complete explanation, but I'm also doing my part to... I, I haven't said the word slave any intentionality for many years now because that made sense to me. I'm yeah. like, what? Like, I wouldn't want to be called, um, you know, a ward. That's what the United States calls Native Americans. Yeah. yeah, that we're just wards of the state. We're just, mm-hmm. you know, uh, dependent imbeciles of the state. Like, why would I use that slave word in that context? It doesn't make sense. So I love what you said about, like, how, you know, people are like, oh, don't be woke, don't be PC. But I love what you said. It's like, no, this is unraveling the power of language, which normalizes oppression and flipping it on its head and starting to oh my normalize responsibility and accountability for people who need to take accountability. So I'm behind you there. And I really appreciate that I was able to give you an aha moment. And I had many aha moments myself. Yes. Yeah. Julie Black. It made me think about Julie Black um, when she sang the Canadian national anthem and she changed the words and she's a black woman and she sang um, the words are, oh, Canada, our home um, and native land. But she changed the words to, oh, Canada, our home on native land. And so the AFN Special Chiefs Assembly in Ottawa they honored her and, and because in that moment of just her changing one word, it just pulled back a veil and made people who were who had been rendered invisible by anthems and words and expressions that have been taken as mainstream. It based it made them feel so seen that they honored her um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in appreciation for just changing, saying our home and native land, changing that to our home on native land. Right. And and it just made me think of that moment. Powerful. Yes, and that Powerful. is that is her contribution of her generation, and it is so important. And then maybe next generation will say, "Oh, Turtle Island." Uh, the, the indigenous lands on which we are yeah. know, squat, squatting on because <laughs> uh, other assumption that this is our home, yes. which, you know, which I do want. I want people to feel home here. I want people I of all races to feel home here. I really do. I just want them to know that, like, it's not an entitlement of our home, but it is a place that, like you said, resting on, on bloody soil that... It is um, yeah. by the invitation of indigenous peoples that it would maybe become our home. And that until then, we are guests, we are visitors in solidarity. In um, Eve Tuck, say, some have talked about permanent fugitivity, but giving that fugitivity a rest and saying, you no longer have to be a fugitive. You know, come be in our communities, come rest, come sit here at the invitation of indigenous yeah. peoples 
which we've always wanted to do. If you look at the history, um, indigenous peoples were always coming to the shore with like gifts and food and we saved all the oh. pilgrims lives <laughs> like we were always wanting this to for be a home for everyone but not at the expense of our entire way of life you know and so we got to do it we got to start over we got to redo it and say all right everyone who comes to what we call america quote unquote don't look to joe biden for permission on how to be here look to the indigenous peoples you are not in america you are in turtle island and we, even though we don't have the official title of president or Congress or cabinet or whatever, we are the legitimate right. holders of those titles. So come to us and ask us, how do I be on this land? How do I be a good guest? Do I take my shoes off when I get in the house? Do I say thank you in your language? You know, and, and like I wouldn't go to Italy and say, this is mine now. I don't got to learn Italian. You all should speak English or you all should speak Navajo. <laughs> you know, like you, when you go to another right. country, you, you right. go as a guest and you go uh, politely. And so that's what we're excited to do is start again. Let's start this over. Let's say, okay, here we are all. We didn't ask to be born here in Turtle Island, but here we are. How do we make the best of it and come again? Yeah with uh, humility and joy and say, look, how do we walk behind the people who were here in a good way, in a way that also our side as Native people, we have to give that home and that refuge and say, okay, you are home now. But on these terms of respect, reciprocity, relationality, and first and foremost, yes. know, respect. Dignity. Yes, I agree. I'm with you. I stand with you in that and I receive that. It's so funny for me. The Julie Black story, it touched me. But for you, it's a very small step, but it's not enough. And it's like, we have to mind our efforts. We have to understand like the weight of, of what we're doing and that it's not enough. Like we tell white people all the time, you know, white people want, oh, I want to learn. I want you to teach me. I'm not responsible for teaching you, you know, and for a black person to say that, that's too much. Like, oh my gosh, you should want... They're trying to help. No, you get to establish the terms. It's like in our house, you know, I'm married 26 years this year and we have three sons, 25, 18 and 16. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's important here in our home is that you get to say how you want to be loved. Mm. It's not love until you, until the person is able to receive it as love. And so, you know, you could give someone a bouquet of flowers, but if they are deathly allergic, then that's not a gift. You have to, we have to learn how to love and honor people in a way that's meaningful for them. Um, and it's not selfish for someone to establish the terms in which they are loved and cared for. It's not just innately selfish for me to say, this is how I feel most seen and heard. This is how I feel most cared for. This is how I feel, you know, more most honored. This is the way I perceive that you uh, are bestowing dignity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is, I also don't want to discount that one word. I think that is, it's such a powerful step in the right direction. So although it's quote unquote, yeah. might not be enough, it is. And yes, we can always push ourselves to do more. So I know we've been on for a while. Absolutely. And yeah, I just yeah. really <laughs> appreciate your, I mean, I this is it. Yeah. Yes, me too. I've just loved this whole conversation. And 
we're going to put some links, you know, in the podcast description of more articles that you can check out that really lay out the solidarity between Indigenous and Black communities for the synergy of our movements, for the creation and the deepening of our movements. And I just can't thank you enough, Katina, for coming Mm -hmm. here with your whole self and pushing back on me and allowing me to push back on you in a safe space to disagree, a safe space to push each other further. And I think these conversations are quiet beneath the surface, but we need to bring them up and out. And to all the non-Black, non-Native listeners there, you know, thank you for listening. And I hope this gave you tools as well. Uh, You know, like Katina said, like the Black and white conversation is not of Black creation. It is of the creation of whiteness. So how can you play a part in uh, making it less of a black and white conversation? And as you fight so hard for black liberation, you know, remembering that you're doing that on Turtle Island and and that there is indigenous liberation at the same time, you know, just thank you for listening. Thank you for holding space uh, as Katina and I hold space for each other. And, you know, maybe there's a part two coming up soon for this conversation uh, but I did want to give us a chance to close in case we both have to get back to our busy lives and everything. But I think we did a good job of really uh, working the soil of this conversation. And we got pretty far down yeah. the road there. And I just appreciate you from the bottom of my heart, sister, for meeting me halfway in this discussion. Same, sister. I am grateful for you and I'm grateful for this conversation I'm so glad that we were able to connect and I would love a part two, three, and however many more parts to this conversation. And I hope that we can stay connected and we will definitely be sharing this on the black history for white people podcast and leveraging our resources to um, point to your work because it's so necessary and you are a gift. You are a voice um, to your people. I'm really excited about, you know, continuing our partnership and, you know, continuing in the discussion. Me too. Me too. It's so exciting to have this conversation and to build those bridges. And I honor you, not just as my black sister, but as my indigenous sister, you know, I don't care if it's one sixteenth, one thirty second. that we don't, we don't, (laughs) we, we have a, what do they call it? A one drop rule on our side of like, you know, we don't care. Yep. Like you are indigenous and and thank you for honoring your, your indigenous ancestors by honoring me and my and my people's struggle, you know. And so I see you in both uh, capacities um, and we're both musicians. Yep. We're both uh, voices. So we have that in common as well. And, you know, there's so much more we could have said. There's a lot more we could have said, but we're going to leave a lot of resources in the description if you want to deepen this uh, exploration for yourself personally. And to all my Indigenous brothers and sisters and siblings listening, you know, let's stand behind the Black community and beside as as, as folks who are working to uproot the system of anti-Blackness in our communities and in the world. And yeah, that's that's. That's what I got to say at this moment. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I would also just want to add that my husband, his grandmother, she was half uh, Blackfoot. Um, Her mother was full-blooded Blackfoot. And so both sides of our family have that bloodline. 
So I'm grateful for you. And um, I look forward to us chatting again. I sent you a picture of my great grandmother in the chat just so you could see her face in the other chat. So um, I'll, I'll text you that picture as well, just so you could see, you know, her face in mine. So. <laughs> oh, please do. Please do. I love that hybridity of our yeah. uh, respective earth-based cultures. It's very beautiful. So thank you for sharing. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening and have a beautiful day. Shout out to the whole Nehije, Our Voices, Indigenous Solutions podcast team, especially Lincia Begay, our editor, Jen Miller, our social media manager, and to the Calliopeia Foundation for their generous support to make all this happen. Thank you for listening to this partnership between Nehije, Our Voices, and Black History for White People. Now enjoy two songs, one by co-host Katina Stone Butler and the other by Lila June, highlighting the beauty and challenges of our mutual struggles for abolition and liberation.
Shine your light, we are equal. I remember the days when our prayers were illegal. I remember the days when being Indian was lethal. Yeah, we had a rough past, but get ready for the sequel. Get ready for the glorious comeback of our people. Oh, yeah. Rise up. All you warriors of love, all you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above. I can feel it in my heart, can you feel it in your blood? I can hear the seventh fire calling us to wake up, wake up. All nations rise, rise up cause now's your time. We don't have to hide anymore cause now's our time. All nations rise, rise up cause now's your time We don't have to hide anymore cause now's our time With forgiveness as my bow and my prayers as my arrows Pull them back and let go, I watch them fly like sparrows Have hope yeah, have hope With compassion as my shield and faith Down to my marrow I will walk the pollen path Even when it gets narrow Yeah, yeah, I Resurrect Yes, you can bet That we seen the single mama Raising children on the res We seen domestic violence Tear apart what we have left We seen the alcohol Take it all and leave us dead We seen the children take their lives When they can't take the dread anymore Can't take the dread anymore No, we can't take the dread anymore no, we can't take the dread anymore it's a, yeah. it's a war, but we've seen it all before And now we know we can change it Cause that's why we were born We know we are the ones that we have been waiting for We are the ones Grandma has been praying for So rise up, all you warriors of love All you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above I can feel it in my heart Can you feel it in your blood? I can hear the seven fire calling us to wake up Wake up Levántense, es nuestro tiempo No tienes que esconderte más Ahora es nuestro tiempo Mujer indígena, tú eres tan sagrada 
traigas medicina de tu suelo todavía. A pesar del abuso de tu cuerpo y tu tierra, respetamos tus ancestros y la suya cultura. Hombre indígena, tú eres honorable y yo veo la fuerza que todavía sobrevive. A pesar del abuso de tu raza venerable, yo respeto tus ritos, tus danzas, tus padres. Somos guerreros del amor y guerreros de la paz. Si no vamos a escondernos más, somos guerreros del amor y guerreros de la paz. Si no vamos a escondernos más. They say that history is written by the victors. But how can there be a victor when the war isn't over? The battle has only just begun, and Creator is sending his very best warriors. And this time, it isn't Indians versus cowboys. No, this time, it is all the beautiful races of humanity together on the same side, and we are fighting to replace our fear with love. And this time bullets, arrows, and cannonballs won't save us. The only weapons that are useful in this battle are the weapons of truth, faith, and compassion. <laughs>